Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. And as I said, sadly, our last sermon in Romans 6, and it's happening on the third day of September in the year of our Lord, 2023. I'm sure you are aware of this, but modern history divides time based on the most significant event that ever happened, the coming of Jesus Christ. Ever since 525, our calendar system identifies dates by B.C. or A.D. The term B.C. is used to date the period of before Christ, and A.D. doesn't mean after death, as I once thought, but Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of our Lord. And Based on our calendars, we acknowledge that everything happened prior to his coming was before the advent of the Messiah, and everything that happens after his coming is in the year after he has come. So 2023, year after he's come. And Paul is showing us the exact same thing in Romans 6, that for the Christian, there is a B.C., a life before Christ, and there's also, praise God, an A.D., a, a life that's now lived for Him. And, and the Christian calendar is full of fruitful days, and it has its end point, which is eternal life. The last time, Paul showed us the barren branches of the B.C. life, and today he's going to show us the loaded limbs of the redeemed life, or the A.D. life. And, and only a Christian has that kind of calendar. Did you ever think about that? For the Christian, uh, the calendar has two halves. And the second half has no end. Only a translation into an unending existence called life eternal. But, but for the sinner, there's only one side of the calendar. And after that life, uh, there's only eternal death and separation from God. And, and if you're wondering, you, you want to live on the A.D. side of the, of, the, of the calendar. And today, Paul's going to remind us why. Romans 6 is very plain and simple to grasp. We said last week that there are parts of Romans that are difficult to understand, but this is not hard to understand. It even provides sound reasons why, we're, why we should listen to what Paul's saying. I mean, how plain is this? A slave obeys his master. You can't have two masters at the same time. And they both provide something for your service. All of that is very, very plain. There's nothing complicated. It can be hard to obey sometimes, but it's plain truth. And last week, Paul took a close look at the fruitlessness of the unsaved life. And he did that as one of the several reasons that, that we're, we're going to complete today. But all of them are to exhort us, explain to us why we should obey his command to, to yield our members to, to Christ in verse 19. He just said that the Christian life produces fruit and the unsaved life produces nothing but, a, but an empty return. And, and he's providing reasons for his argument that began in verse 16. You remember, Romans 6 has two parts. We're in the second part, in verse 15. When someone, someone once said, when, when God asks his sheep to, to bite down on one of his commandments, they don't bite bare ground. I mean, God backs up his promises with, with reason. And, and in verses... 20 through 23, Paul provides many reasons. He compares the, the results of the two masters in verses 16 through 19 
It says both of those masters provide a payout for, for service, which Paul details here at the end of the, of the chapter. In verse 18, he told us that those who receive his gospel have become slaves of righteousness. That's truth. And in verse 19, he then makes an appeal to pursue this new master by yielding our whole self to him. And now in verses 20 through 23, he'll show us exactly what the results will, will, will be by contrasting both of these kinds of lives. He, we, we said he performs a fruit inspection before he draws his final conclusion in the verse that you, you know well. You were slaves in, to sin in B.C., hopelessly bound. You became something new. You became obedient from the heart to a doctrine that reshapes you, and now you live differently. You became slaves of righteousness, all by the power of grace. So it's God who gets the credit. And this whole context is about how grace is so breathtaking. It's almost offensive. It is offensive to, to the human heart where we want to get some credit. Your role in the change that God has made by grace after that grace has made the change is in verse 19. Look at verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. You, you still have the flesh. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, Here's, here's your part. So now present your members, your, your whole body, your, your, your mind, your will, your, your emotions, everything, as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And Paul says that life produces fruit, eternal fruit. And so we said verses 16 through 23 is actually one long answer to this question of verse 15 about shall we continue in sin because the Mosaic law has been set aside and he makes a general argument, applies it spiritually, and then he contrasts the results. You said, we said when you put it all together, there are three arguments that explain spiritual slavery. There's the representation of slavery, the reality of slavery, and now the results of, uh, of slavery. And the first argument that we've already looked at is in verse 15 and, and 16. Paul says there, there's, a, there's a representation of, of slavery. He says his message does not produce lawless people. Because slaves obey their masters. It, it produces obedient people because you've changed your master. And then he turns from this general illustration and he applies it spiritually. And, and he starts on the doctrinal side of the, of the corn. He, he says everyone is a slave. That's doctrine. That's true. You're, you're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, this is the doctrinal reality. You are, you're born in Adam and you've been translated into Christ or or you're still in Adam. There's only, only two. He shows us in those verses that how the master changes by giving us one of the clearest pictures of a Christian testimony in the Bible. And then he moves to the practical side. Reality of slavery practically. You now follow your new master. And you do that by yielding to him. And then he gives sound reason of what you have to look forward to by contrasting both of these, these lives. And this is where we're at, the third part. The third argument that explains how grace operates through spiritual slavery is the results. If you would, at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, key words, this is where we're at. But now... Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your fruit or your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. There's the barrenness of the unsaved life, which we covered last time, verses 20 and 21. There's the fruitfulness of the redeemed life that we'll look at today in verse 22. And then there's the summary conclusion in verse 23. I mean, Paul looks at both sides of the equation reasonably, and then he summarizes. We looked at what you received from your unsaved days last week. Today we'll look at what's promised to those who are in Christ. And then Paul's crescendo conclusion. He says, you should listen to me. You should present your members as slaves of righteousness based on three reasons. There's no benefit in the old way, the old life. There's true fruit in the new one. And in the end, you get eternal life instead of eternal death. The negative reasons, the positive reasons, and then a blended conclusion. I mean, Paul says to, to, to the question... Are we going to continue in sin because the law has been set aside by, by, by grace? Paul says it's utterly unthinkable to a Christian to keep sinning. If you're a Christian and, and you don't find it unthinkable to keep on sinning, then you're not a Christian because you've changed masters. You may find yourself in sin, but you won't like it. It's not only impossible, he says it's impractical. Based on, based on verses 20 through 23. We wouldn't even desire to do it if we could because of the fruitlessness of the old way and the benefits of the, of the new, the benefits that he'll point to this morning. I mean, he starts by holding up the unsaved life, and he says, look at it. He makes three statements about the unfruitful nature of your pre-salvation days. It starts with this overarching declaration. Look, look at verse 20. He says, for when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. That's the declaration. And then here's three observations about the unsafe state. Spiritually fruitless, you were ignorantly shameful, and you were gaining death. I mean, Paul says, let's not theorize about this. Let's examine the unsaved life. What did it produce? A, a life, by the way, when you, when you had the law, w what did that life produce? A life that was apart from grace. I mean, he gives logical reasons. And it's all past tense. He, he's speaking to Christians. and Only Christians can do this kind of evaluation. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were then free in regard to righteousness. And now you know that as a believer. In that state, you were outside of the realm of righteousness. You were free in respect to it. And, and that produced an empty life, a life that you're now ashamed of and one that ended in death. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, what benefit, or literally what fruit, were you then deriving? from the things of which you're now ashamed, where the outcome of those things is, is death. He, he says your life outside of Christ was fruitless toward God. It didn't have a little bit of fruit. It was fruitless. And it was also shameful. And that's the reason you don't want it to be by the scales of good or, or bad. When God gets up there, he's going to weigh out your fruit. I mean, Paul says you don't, want that, you don't want that deal because you were fruitless. That means there's nothing on the scale. You've already been weighed in the balance, the Bible said, and found wanting. And what was actually found there was shameful. Not only, you be, only when you became a believer could you see that. I mean, what, what you once thought was a, was a great value, you, you realize now is empty. And beyond that, you're ashamed of it. You, you now are able to put it on a proper scale. You, it, its weight is different. And beyond seeing its folly, you see it's a disgrace. But not only was our former life pointless, brought you shame now, but it ends in death. That's what verse 21 says. For the outcome of those things is death. I mean, Paul takes the examination of the unsaved life to the end. 
which most people don't do. They live for today or the pleasure of sin, which has a season, but then that season ends. Paul says, look where it ends. It, it, it takes the examination of the unsaved life to the ultimate test, which is looking where it will end. And, and as a Christian, you know that. And, and so knowing that, why would you ever want to go back to sin? And the answer is you wouldn't. If you're in your right mind, you may be overtaken by a fault and you may fall in it, but, but you wouldn't if you're, if you're thinking. But what about your new life in Christ? We know the, the negatives. What, what about the, the positives? Are there any reasons to rejoice in it? And indeed there, there are, says the apostle. Look at verse 22. Now here's the A.D. But now... Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your fruit. Some of your translations say benefit, literally fruit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Paul says in the redeemed life, there's fruit. It's fruitful. God liberates from sin. God places us into service and God grows the fruit of holiness and he gives eternal life as a gift. Paul reminds us what we experience now as Christians and what we can look forward to in the future. And and notice how he starts. He says, but now. That was as opposed to then in verse 21. Then, what what was the benefit were you then deriving? Here's but now. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says only a Christian can say but now. Now there's something new. Now there's a new day. Now there's a new calendar. Now there's a new power. Now there's a new growth. Now there's new life. But for the sinner, there's nothing new. It's all B.C. There's only one, one calendar. He said the life of the non-Christian is always the same. There's no difference, no change. He, he changes his pleasures. He changes his company. He changes his sin, but his life is the same. But the Christian is not the same. He has a but now. And he's left his old life, and, and he has something entirely new, something completely different. I don't know if you realize it or not, but this is an exact parallel of another one of Paul's famous passages in Ephesians 2. You like Romans 6? You like Ephesians 2 as well as a Christian, don't you? Watch this parallel. It has the very similar catchphrase, but God. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Watch, that's past tense. He's speaking to Christians. In you, Ephesian believers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Look back at the old unsaved life, Ephesian Christian, in which you formerly walked in the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then we too... All formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I mean, that's spiritual slavery defined if there ever was. You were dead, you're slaves, you formerly lived according to that master, the course of this world, which was is under the control of Satan, which was a life in the lust of our flesh and the desires of it and, and, and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We were free in regard to righteousness, even as the rest. And here's the two words. But God. But God, by His invading grace, by His sovereign grace, being rich in mercy because of His great love, where which He loved us, 
even when we were in that condition, even when we were, we were slaves, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not the law, by grace. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, what a change the Lord makes. And that change begins with freedom. Look, if you would, at verse 22 of Romans 6. But now, we have a but now. But now, having been freed from sin. What, what, what change does the Lord bring? What's in the A.D. life? Well, the first thing is, is freedom. Liberation from sin. That's the first thing that Paul mentions. It's the first thing that you experience as a believer. You don't know a whole lot about the Bible. I didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. There's one thing that I knew when I came to Christ. I am free. <laughs> you might say I'm clean. You feel it. You know it. It's where before you weren't. I saw a documentary last week. I, I didn't intend to. I was looking at something else, and it caught my attention. And it was a documentary about people who rescued foreign laborers from domestic slavery in London. And it began with two women who had been in the same place themselves. They had been in domestic slavery, meaning that they had been brought to for a job and then kept and then held there. And these two ladies are sitting outside of a very posh home in an upscale part of London in a van with undercover cameras waiting on some other ladies who were inside the home to come outside so they could escape. A very wealthy Middle Eastern family had brought them to the UK with the promise of work from a, a poor country. But once they arrived, they took their passports and their money and, so they couldn't leave. And these ladies were abused and they were terrified and you could almost feel the tension in the video as these three women stepped away from this magnificent row house into the waiting van, and the van drives away. And it ends with all three of the, the, the ladies uh, reuniting in a, in a crosstown cafe, weeping for joy, now knowing that they're, that they're safe. And the commentator said in a very British accent, finally, there is freedom. That's what Paul says here. He's calling us to remember our documentary of escape. Whatever your story, God in the gospel rescued you from your slave master's sin. And it wasn't a Middle Eastern man who held you. It was sin's power. And finally, there is freedom. I mean, like those ladies, you signed up for promises. Sin promised you something, and, and you, you were duped. You believed it, but quickly realized it was a broken pledge, and then sin wouldn't let you go. And Sin says you don't need to listen to God. You can do your own thing. You can be free. And it lies. Free your conscience, free your body, free your mind. But all it gives you is bondage. The sinner is tormented in his conscience. He's not free in his mind. I mean, he lays in bed and thinks and schemes. His mind is full. There's no freedom there. There's no freedom in his will. I mean, once he starts in sin, he gets entangled. He can't stop it even when he wants to. He realizes he's a slave, but he can't break free. I mean, there's no freedom in his body. There are things that once the body gets used to it, must have them. 
And a sinner will go great distances and spend late hours seeking what, what he or she cannot live without. He, and he must lie and weave all types of excuses to cover themselves and, and their sin to the point that it's wearying. And then, then you forget the lies that you told yesterday and you have to tell more today. It's a weary life. Far from being free. And one of the most common things I hear when people come to Christ is, I was so tired of covering my tracks. I was so exhausted keeping up the, the facade. And no, there's, there's no freedom in sin. But Paul says God sets you free. He cleanses your conscience from dead works, Hebrews. He releases your will, Romans 6. He reconciles you to God and gives you peace, Romans 5. And he'll even deliver you bodily one day. And the change is absolute. There's a then and there's a now. And there's no, no degrees between them, as, as, as one writer said. You don't start in a sinful state and then step gradually better and better until you, you wake up one day in Christianity. I mean, you're either a Christian or you're not. I mean, that's what Paul's pointing out here. You are free or you are, you're bound. Do you want to be free? I mean, do you really want to be free? If you want to be free and the answer is yes, then there's only one person who can set you free, and it's Jesus Christ. Ask God to set you free by turning toward him and away from your sin, and he'll give you new life. And that new life includes service to a good master. God also places us into service in the A.D. life. Look at verse 22. He says, but now, having been freed from sin... And enslaved to God. You, you, you've been enslaved to God. I mean, the gospel takes you from death to life, from bondage to freedom, and from service to sin to service to God. I mean, notice Paul changes here from being slaves of righteousness to being slaves of God. Before, in verse 16 and beyond, he talked about being a slave of righteousness. And now he says, you've been enslaved to God the ultimate master. I mean, the second benefit of the A.D. life is that you're now able to truly serve the Lord. Now, only a Christian can say that's a good thing. I mean, an unsaved person doesn't want to serve the Lord, but you want to serve the Lord as a believer, don't you? That's a desire of your heart. I want to serve God. I want to give my life to God. I want whatever the Lord wants. That's what I want for my life. And now you're truly able to do that. You couldn't before because you were still serving sin, but God's now placed you into His service into good works, which he's foreordained. I mean, notice it says, having been enslaved to God. Now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That, that, that original participle works with this enslavement too. Now, having been enslaved to God. It's passive. It's something that happened to you in salvation. I mean, Paul doesn't say, now that you're a Christian, enslave yourself to God, as if it's a command. He says, yield your members once you are slaves. By grace, grace makes you slaves. Now, now your part is to yield your, yourself to, to what God's already done. That, that's a command, but, but becoming a slave is, is not a command. It's a result of what God has done in salvation. He's placed you into service. Did you know it's a privilege to serve Christ? I know it gets hard, weary sometimes, which is why the Bible tells us don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap but it's a privilege to serve Christ. I mean, before salvation, you might have done many things that you believed were good. 
which is why people think that there's a good side of the scale and God's just going to weigh something out. He's going to find something there. They, the things that you did may have even benefited somebody, but you got no credit for that because it wasn't ultimately for God. You, you were still ruled by your old master. The plastic fruit of morality and ethics can often look like God's service from a distance, but, but upon closer inspection, they're, they're nothing but wax alternatives, one writer said. It's true. But the authentic fruit of the redeemed life, it's indisputable. It's evident whenever it's present. And it's possible now that you're placed in, in service by, by God. I mean, again, the parallel of Ephesians verse you probably know well. How does Ephesians 2 end? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You were placed into service, is what he's saying, which God prepared beforehand so that you would live in them, so that you would walk in them. It doesn't just end by being saved by grace and by being spiritually lifted up in, in, in new life. Your feet are still here on the ground and your feet here on the ground God leaves you here to serve him. I mean, can I just simplify your Christianity for you? All you have to do is live pleasing to God. That's it. I want to live today pleasing to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. That you, as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. That's it. That's what daily Christianity looks like. I want to live pleasing to God, and today I want to do that more and more. It's just as simple as obeying whatever God commands. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about outcomes. You don't have to worry about other people. You just obey. You have one master. You don't even have to worry about the other slaves. You just worry about the one master. In salvation, God looks to his son. He's fully pleased in him. So it's not that you're yielding to God somehow brings him greater pleasure. And you kind of move up the ladder. You're already secure in Christ. But in that security, you strive to walk pleasing to God yourself. And of course you understand that that now as a Christian. You also understand that was impossible as a non-Christian. They can't live pleasing to the Lord because they're living to please themselves. And there's no middle ground. I mean, Paul's made that abundantly clear. You can't have God because you're obeying your sin. There are these two dominating powers in the world, sin and, and God. And a believer is in service to God. But what does that service produce? Well, he tells us. It grows fruit of holiness. Verse 22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. There's freedom, there's true service, and now there's real fruit. Just as before in verse 21, Paul uses this specific term. And your, your NASB uses the term benefit, but it's a specific term for fruit. And I think Paul wants to retain that. He says someone who is in service to God, a slave to God, bears fruit. And then he defines that fruit. They reap the benefit of holiness, or as the verse says, resulting in sanctification. And then you also get eternal life in the end. This is almost an exact parallel to the old life verses 20 and 21. There's a lack of fruit there versus good fruit. Fruitlessness versus fruitfulness. Your old life produced shame. Your new life produces holiness and sanctification, which you won't be ashamed of. The outcome of one is death. The outcome of the other is eternal life. I mean, 
really here, Paul just echoes what Jesus said about how we discern a person's true condition? I mean, this is nothing new. What did Jesus say? Do men gather grapes and figs from thorns or thistles? Every good tree brings forth good fruit. That's what Paul's saying here. What's the good fruit? It's sanctification. It's holiness. And he's been saying that because the law alone does not produce fruit, which is what they were saying. You're going to remove, remove, remove the law? I mean, how are we going to be fruitful to God? And Paul's saying, you know you're, you're in Christ by the fruits. Just look at it. A transformed heart by grace brings an inward submission to Christ, and without that, there's nothing more than self-righteousness dressed up like a Christian. People try that route, don't they? I tried that route before I, I came to the Lord. We think it's outside in. They think if I change my, my surroundings, I change my, my circumstances, then somehow that's going to change me. I mean, we base all kinds of things in the world by that. Just, just educate people or feed people or, or change their, their, their environment. But people are just empty locust shells that, that, that you find. There's an exterior, but there's nothing on the inside. Or they're like that stick of gum trick I've told you about many times, played by your younger siblings. So they offer you the gum, and it's just a wrapper, and there's nothing but air when you open it. I mean, what a contrast. We now have fruit before we have none. But I want you to notice, again, that this fruit is defined. It's defined as holiness, resulting in sanctification or holiness. I mean, the fruit that a believer has is, is holiness or sanctification, being set apart to God. I mean, that means in our walk, we become farther and farther set apart from sin and closer and closer to the, to the Lord. It, it, it means that the love of the world is not in us, and because of that, the works of the flesh become less and less. And remember, Paul told us that we still have the flesh to deal with, but the love of it's not in us anymore. So its deeds or its works become fewer and fewer as you mature, as Clay's teaching us on Sunday nights. It also means that the love of the Father is in us. And so we bear the fruit of the Spirit, and we put on hearts of compassion and kindness and, and humility. I mean, in the macro, sanctification means to be set apart for God's use. I mean, think about it. How can you be used by God or gain any fruit if you're in the hand of the devil? I mean, you can't because you're owned by another master. But now that you're a Christian, you're set apart for the Lord's service. And one writer said, holiness is not a feeling. It's not some second work of grace that you're, you're trying to, to, to climb into. It's not an experience. It just means being devoted to God in His service in greater and greater ways. Or to use Paul's words from Ephesians, the new man has a new walk. And that walk is pleasing to God. You say, well, that helps a little bit. But what does sanctification look like in daily life? I mean, what are the parts? Well, Paul's already described some of those in detail. As he said in verse 15, it begins in grace. Grace has to be there. Grace is what translates us to, into, this, into this new realm where we can, we can actually be holy. In verse 16, he says it's obedience. Remember, that was the, the whole focus of this slave-master relationship, obedience. And then it's being committed to a pattern of teaching in verse 17. You are now committed to, to the Bible where you weren't. You're committed to a new teaching, and that new teaching transforms you, and that brings about righteous acts, righteous deeds. So it begins with grace. 
My grace produces a submission to a specific teaching, which is the scriptures, and then that results in righteous practices in, in your life. All of those are expressions of allegiance to God and, and form parts of sanctification. Paul says you go from being fruitless to fruit that yields a crop of sanctification. And that ends with a final harvest of eternal life. Look, if you would, how he ends this. God gives eternal life. Verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. Holiness is the direct result of saved life. And the outcome, eternal life. He does the exact same thing here. He goes to the end. What's the end? What's at the end of the rainbow? What's at the end of the, of the life? Lived for God. Just as service to sin had an end result, so does serving Christ. It it's eternal life instead of eternal death. Now, don't get the idea. I mean, in one sense, eternal life is heaven. I mean, there's a place called heaven, a literal place, a never-ending period of time where we'll be with the Lord. It, it, it's something that you and I can't comprehend because we're finite. We're, we're in a defined period. There's a beginning to us and an end, but heaven, there is no end. It just keeps going. There's all kinds of ways to try to try to describe what heaven is, is like and things that, you know, a bird flies over the top of Mount Everest once a year and rakes its uh, wing on the top of Mount Everest and and if it does that every year, by the time Mount Everest, by the, the wearing of the wing of the bird, reaches sea level, that's the first day of eternity. I mean, we have to do things like that to try to grasp what it's like having a never-ending period of, of time. Never-ending period of time in, in eternal bliss and joy, by the way, without sin or the tempter or sickness or anything else. It's going to be a wonderful place. But eternal life begins the moment that you're born again. You were dead, and then you became alive. That's when you receive eternal life. That's when the calendar turns. There's a B.C., and now there's an A.D., and then it begins then, and it never, ever ends. So Paul's not just talking about heaven here. He says that there's things to look forward to from the moment that you come. But he does say the outcome. The outcome of this kind of life is eternal life. Doug Moose said it's not granted in its full and final form until that which is mortal is swallowed up by life. 2 Corinthians 5, 4, 15, 4. And eternal life is progressive. It's not just having heaven at the end, although that would be wonderful in and of itself. It's exactly what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 3. John 17, 3, I should say. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I mean, eternal life is to come to know God in an increasing measure. I mean, you come to know who He is in salvation, it begins there. And then you grow to know who this God really is. Little by little, prayer by prayer. Sermon by sermon, day by day, month by month, year by end, year by year, and then in the end of this eternal life, it's only the beginning of a never-ending period of time where you get to know this breathtaking God. And the Bible says that that's a gift. It's not something that you can earn. 
It's free, and it's by grace. Look at Paul's summary here after he shows us the fruitfulness of the redeemed life. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, here's Paul's climactic summary of everything he has been saying, not only in chapter 6, but from the beginning. Charles Spurgeon called Romans 6.23 a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth worthy to be written across the sky. I mean, if there ever was a verse to be written across the sky, this is it. I mean, in verse 23, Paul draws all of this together in a neat bow, and he gives a summary contrast of a life of slavery to sin and of slavery to God. The wages of sin is death, but the grace, gift of God is eternal life. And he uses a very specific word for what sin earns. He calls it wages. The word was used for what a soldier was paid for his service, literally his fish ration meaning that those who serve sin receive what they deserve. They're paid for their time in service. Their payment is, is death. Paul uses the same term for wages three times, here and two other places. One in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, where he uses it to describe the wages of a soldier. And then in 2 Corinthians eleven eight, where he uses it about his own support, There's churches that were supporting him so that he could serve the Corinthians. He talked about that's what they were doing. And those payments come throughout the service. It's just like a normal job. That's what this word means. I mean, the word was literally the daily food ration for a Roman soldier for his service. So anyone who heard Paul use this word, especially in Rome, would not have thought of a large severance whenever you, you reach, the, reach the end of your military service. They, they would have thought of something that was given to a soldier day by day. You go and get your fish ration. What a, what a, I mean, is that like an MRE, a Roman MRE, a fish ration? Maybe the, even that is to remind us how bad this is. So the word for wages, though, focuses on the here and now. But Paul uses another word there, doesn't he? For the wages of sin... The here and now, sin, is not only here and now, but it's also death. And that word points us to the end. And when you put both of those together, it's a dark picture. Paul says the master of sin pays out incremental wages of more and more separation from God. Just as you increase in holiness, you get more and more separated from God as a sinner. And that ends with eternal separation. But it can never be a gap that can never be closed. I mean, what Paul's saying here is there's present wrath and then there's future wrath. I mean, people who reject God, their sin takes them farther and farther away from God. And Romans 1 talks about this present wrath where the Lord is turning sinners over to their own desires. And the deeper they go into sin, the more they want the sin and the more the Lord turns them over. That's present wrath, but he says there's also eternal wrath. We also call it hell. Hell is a place where we experience unending punishment for a rejection of God and a life of offending Him with our sin. So Paul's painting a full picture here that's very potent. He says that's what you earn. The Venmo payment that shows up on a daily basis, 
serving the master of sin is a growing separation from all that is good and from God. And then when you retire from service, you get the final payment of unending punishment. Oh, but he quickly turns to, to the glorious contrast. Look at verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but... Here's another one of those wonderful words. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who serve God don't receive the wages that they deserve. They receive the free gift of eternal life. You get that? God does not give wages. He does not pay wages. He gives gifts. Because he operates by grace, and therefore he gets the credit. I mean, those who serve God do not receive salaries that they've earned. In fact, they don't receive anything that they deserve. You don't want to receive what you deserve. They receive a gift sourced from God's grace, which is eternal life. I mean, this summary is, is the key to verse 22, which is why Paul uses this for. It's a carryover. He uses that to tie it as an explanation to what he means by sanctification and eternal life. I mean, Paul is not saying that eternal life is some sort of delayed payment for holy living. When he says resulting in holiness, resulting in sanctification, he's not saying that ending in eternal life, that's, well, if you're holy, then, then God's going to pay you for your holiness. He makes it very plain. That's not what he's saying. Salvation is a matter of grace received through faith from start to finish. You will grow in holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's an evidence that you're saved. But the gift provided by God and received by believers is eternal life. Listen to how Bill Mounts puts it. He says, so in verse 23, not only is the contrast between death and life, not only is there a contrast between death and life, but also between earning and giving. Sinners earn what they receive. By obeying the impulses of sin, they're storing up their reward for sinning. Their severance check is death. And on the flip side, by yielding to the impulses of righteousness, believers do not earn anything. They do, however, receive a gift, the gift of eternal life, which comes by faith through Jesus Christ their Lord. God does not pay wages. Since no man can put him into debt. But don't miss the ending. Look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a very familiar verse. And if you're using this verse to witness to somebody, you typically focus on those, those two places. Our focus is usually on the wages of sin and the gift of grace. But Paul points us here to the proper focus at the end of the verse. He says this gift of grace comes to us in Christ Jesus, who is Lord, who is our Lord. Remember the context of slavery? Our Lord. Remember the detractors were saying that grace makes you lawless and you'll live however you want without some boundary that's there. Paul says, no, grace changes your masters and that new one gives the gift of grace and, and he is the one who is now our Lord, and we call him our Lord. J.M. Boyce said, it's as if Paul stopped here in what he was saying in Romans 6 and reflected. I have said that salvation is the free gift of God, but it surely, I, I surely can't uh, let it go at that. 
Salvation is the gift of God, yes, but how is it possible for God to be thus gracious to us? How can he have given us the gift of eternal life, we being sinners? The answer, of course, is by and in and through Jesus Christ. And he ends his sermon this way, which raises, raises a final question, a personal one. Are you in Jesus Christ? Is Jesus your Savior, your Lord? You see, verse 23 summarizes this whole section with three contrasts. You serve a master, sinner God. There's an outcome that, from that service, death or eternal life, and there comes a wage or a gift. And Paul's whole point since verse 1 is that you were one, by the grace of God you became the other, and if it is by grace, then there's no need to add anything to it. You don't need law. You don't need anything but to receive the grace of God in the gospel. Is that what you believe? I mean, do you believe that you have wages due for your sin? And that with those wages, they're being paid out on a daily basis, and then there's, a, there's one significant in the end. And do you believe for those wages, Jesus stepped in front of you? Here you are going through life, and you're headed toward these. These wages are coming, and there's one at the end. And between you and that end, Christ Jesus stepped with his back turned toward you, and he absorbed the wrath. He took the check. He took the wages down to the last ounce, and then he took them into the grave. And he left them there, and then he rose out in a, out of the grave in a in new power, resurrected life, so that sin would no longer be master over us. It would no longer have power or hold. And then he turns around toward us with open arms and embraces us and says, Come. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Sin won't give you rest. I'll give you freedom. As Isaiah says, Come, you who have no money to buy, come and freely eat. And then we do. And when we do, we get to serve him. We have fruit of holiness. And we get to know this God who saved us and who absorbed all of the penalty for our sin more and more, better and better each day. And if you believe that, that's the good news, the good news of God. And that will set you free. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I sat on the front row during the last song, praying, saying to you that these are good words, clear words, but unless you ignite them, unless you give them life, unless your eye diffuses or casts a quickening ray, a ray of light upon a heart, then they will fall empty to the ground. Still true, but having no effect. Or as Jesus said about the sower, the seed is cast. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the sower. But unless the heart has been tilled, unless it's good soil to receive the seed, there will be no, no fruit. 
Father, I pray today that your word, good seed, has fallen on hearts that have received it. And then I pray, Lord, if they have, that they would they would make that known. They would tell someone, they would ask someone to help them now start the journey of being a believer. And, and I pray for every Christian here, Lord, that we would grow more and more fond of you, in love with you, deeper and deeper into holiness, away from our sin and toward you, and that you would motivate us to do that even through this sermon. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.